Talking Landscape Photography with Christian Fletcher. Christian Fletcher and Cowan. Hi, Peter Eastway here. The natural light in the tunnel here, it gives a shot of beautiful He was the Landscape (laughs) Photographer of the Year three times and he was awarded the West Australian Professional Landscape Photographer of the Year in 2005. He is also the 2011, 2013 and 2015 runner-up to the Australian Travel Photographer of the Year. In 2002, he achieved a Master of Photography from the AIPP. Nick Maladonis, you haven't really done much with your life, have you? (laughs) Yeah, a whole lot of things, but uh, photography has been probably the the thing I love the most, that's for sure. No no Christian Fletcher today. He's uh, on another secret photography mission. And oh, yeah, I'm here, I'm here, yeah, I'm here. I'm, you... I'm, in, I'm in the doomsday bunker. <laughs> you doing, Fletcher? Oh, really? <laughs> Tony Hewitt, come on down. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. Sorry, Fletch. I know you're out there doing something, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, happy to step in and... Um, play the role of the Christian Fletcher, although big, big shoes to fill, but we'll do our best. Well, you're doing a great job so far. You haven't <laughs> But we did have some recording issues, which is normal for you. Yeah, thanks, mate. I always yeah. like to make sure, you know, we each have our style and our mark and we don't like to disappoint, so hopefully mm-hmm. I've kept up my end of the bargain. Let's yes, make sure you have. and Nick can keep up yours. Yep. So, Nick, how's it going? It's going well, yeah. Um, mm. COVID has been a little bit of a challenge, but... Mm. Uh, it's turned into, I guess, other opportunities. So, yeah, I'm uh, enjoying it. Nick, you and I go back a fair way. Um, we've, we've sort of, I was going to say, travelled the landscape together in terms of the photography landscape a little bit and parallel and different times, uh, cross paths. But um, where, did, where did it start for you? I mean, when's the first time Nick Melodonis picked up a camera? It's probably going back uh, in my university days, um, that was in the 70s, and uh, I guess in those days uh, I was subscribing to Time Life magazine and so on, and I was blown away by the photo essays, and especially when they started using um, a little bit more of the, the, the stories done in pictures rather than one picture for one story. And um, in fact, to be honest, I really wanted to be a, a photojournalist, uh, documentary maker rather than a, a landscape person and it sort of fell into landscapes because as I started traveling uh, I, uh, I saw a lot more of landscapes uh, and I found my interest increased there and I had less opportunity of course of shooting um, uh, documentaries and stuff so it just sort of tumbled into it but uh, what also blew me away in those days I think was uh, reading for the first time, um, Ansel Adams's books, and uh, these are two I recommend to any landscape photographer, even even today, because he was very, very eloquent in the way he described things, and especially in the books, the negative and the print, and he described, if you like, the thought processes that takes place when somebody sees a landscape and actually translates that into into the image on the film. And uh, that's then got me started in travel. And uh, then I combined the two. I had done a whole lot of things previous to that. I'd been an academic. I've been a geologist. Um, I then uh, co-founded Integra, which was a, um, a management consulting practice with about nine friends of mine who were basically uh, 
at the man schools of management at the various universities here. And we had a very successful business. But uh, what happened was we were a bit too successful and took too much uh, business away from the universities. And they just threatened the the directors there that either they uh, sold the business to uh, UWA or they wouldn't be allowed to consult any further. And that was when I decided to hell with this. I'm going to do photography full time and uh, embrace poverty once again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just going back to, um, you know, the negative in the print. Mm -hmm. In regards to his images, was there any there that, um, like any particular images that sort of really stuck in your mind and you uh, go back to? Since he did a lot of his work um, in Yosemite and the High Sierras, and I think his images of those, uh, Snake River, for example, was one, you know, Moon Over Half Dome. Uh, there was quite a lot of what I call legend photos that he put together. What really mesmerised me was his absolute control on the tonal values. And you've got to keep in mind that all of this was done with dodging and burning. And you've come from a dark, sorry, from a dark room background as well, Tony. Yeah. And um, I remember that uh, people like Peter Reesway in those days was really doing some great work uh, in the dark room. And uh, I thought, gee, getting that sort of control, um, you know, was absolutely legend. And I tried very hard to emulate a lot of the stuff that people like Eddie Ephraim's, um, I guess, who wrote some of the quintessential books on black and white. Uh, Nocom, who was the printer for a lot of the uh, the legends um, in in um, in hot couture and these sort of uh, mm. genres, um, and how they actually manage the print in the darkroom. So. Um, I, I don't know if I ever achieved the the heights, I guess, that people like uh, Peter and yourself did, but certainly those early days, it got you to really understand when you're looking at landscapes, how to be able to read light and to understand uh, how tonal values actually make or break an image. And, of course, coming in without the use of colour, but looking at black and white per se in how uh, the landscape uh, transforms itself and light changes uh, was something that, you know, I, I never stopped learning and uh, it really um, enthused me. So if you look at your style, if you like, and mm. the way you like to present your images, how would you have described your style back then when you were first out shooting? I guess in a way, like a lot of us do, you find uh, one or two people that you really enjoy their images and you're not really copying them, but you're sort of mimicking their style because that's what you want to do mm. eventually if you do it properly you then get your own style um but you find uh, you take a lot from the way in which they actually see light and to me light is everything i mean the composition is important but what makes or breaks an image to me is the play of light and um, you know being able to draw one's eyes into one part of an image which you can do basically from from uh, your light. And so it has a, like a centre of interest. I see so many photographs from students over the years uh, that basically they're very good technicians, but that still haven't quite mastered the idea of light yet. And they will eventually, and they'll get their own style. So what they generally tend to do, just <coughs> one person for a while, until eventually, you know, light bulb goes on and they start to get their own style. Sure. So for a long time, I devoured all the stuff, the people like Weston, uh, uh, Adams, and a lot of these early practitioners. 
Uh, I thought Eddie Ephraim's book, uh, which was more um, technical as well as artistic, did an awful lot. And I know a lot of the early people, and probably you were one of them, uh, actually got a lot of their ideas and start from Eddie Ephraim's books. Yeah. He, he was so eloquent in the way he wrote about what really makes a great black and white image. Sure. So how would you say your styles evolved then? Like if you think back where you started and what, how would you describe your style now? I think it's a little bit more focused, but to be honest, Tony, uh, I, I feel as though people have a particular way of seeing and I don't think it changes drastically through the lines, <clears throat> to be honest. Yeah. If I go back and see some of your early work, some of uh, Peter's, Peter Eastway's early work, uh, some of Christian's early work, etc. When you go later on there, I think there's no dramatic change in the way they see, but they just seem to hone in uh, the use of light and the use of technology, etc., to get out what they want in the image or become better practitioners. I don't think your eye, I guess this is it's only just my way of thinking, I don't think my eye has evolved uh, in a dramatically different direction to what I first uh, saw images. And I don't know what your viewpoint is on this, but... Um, uh, I think probably it's become a little bit, little bit slicker in one way. I've, I've, I've been able to use uh, Photoshop, Lightroom technology, uh, artificial intelligence in these, um, you know, the new um, stuff that's coming out uh, from some of the uh, top makers of the third-party products. Um, and so, look, it's become, if you like, a little bit better in the use of technology, but I don't sort of see a huge difference uh, in my landscapes that are taking huge leaps one way or the other. Sure. So what makes for you as a, as a you know, accomplished, very, very accomplished and well-respected travel photographer and landscape photographer, what for you makes a good image? I mean, you, you, you've, I know you teach and you mentor on a lot of things, including Lightroom and Photoshop, et cetera, but how much of it do you use and, and how much of it's required to make a great image or how would you yeah. use it to make a good image? Yeah, that's a good question, Tony. And in fact, it is a bit different in travel as it is in landscapes. To me, a successful travel photograph should really make you want to go there. There is something called a sense of place. And I think ever since the early days, I started exploring different countries. And in those days, we'll probably get onto this later in this talk it was really an adventure um to me trying to capture a sense of place going to somewhere where i haven't been before and saying okay what is it about this landscape this culture and these people that is different from where i've come from secondly how can i put this in a way that makes people really want to go and visit that country mm. uh, and then try if you like not to in the early days, I used to try and capture, if you like, the trophy photograph. You know, you'd go to the US uh, and you capture those great images that all the you know, landscape photographers did, but all they really were were trophy photographs. And you say, once you get past that, and you're saying, no, what you're trying to do is to capture something about this country. It doesn't have to be the grand landscape, but something about it that is unique and then communicate that to the viewer and to do it in such a way is that the main subject area becomes very clear. They get to the story that you want to tell and then make them want to try and visit that area. And right. I think this is something that over the years, um, especially in Greece where I've been 
to uh, more than any other country, uh, I, I saw a changing face <coughs> of that particular country. Other countries I've visited over a period of about 10 to 20 years, and I saw changes there as well, not always for the better. The landscapes hadn't changed so much, but certainly the people and the culture had. Mm. And when I go back to my early photographs, and I said, well, I try to make people want to do that back, say, 20 years ago, what would make them want to go back today? Because, um, you know, Twitter and YouTube and everything else, there's so many things out there which are distracting, and there's so many photographs being taken. What is it these days that makes people grab a photograph and say, wow, and I think the wow factor is being able to put together a story and also work on the light to be able to bring up one part of an image where you want the viewer's eyes to rest on where the main part of the story is and let them savour that. And uh, that's mm. that takes quite a while to be able to, you know, to get something out of it. Mm. You know, um, you know, the Greece stuff is amazing and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Greece and, and something special that we'll share with the um, listeners in a little while. But before we do that, you talked about trophy photos and one that a lot of people are familiar with is your camel train, Nubra Valley in the Himalayas. Tell us a little bit about the, the story behind that. And, um, you know, this is an image that I think won gold distinctions. It got second in the World Cup. It's being used by a major camera manufacturer. Like, it's an amazing image that captures, as you title your website, The Spirit of Place. But tell us a little bit about that picture and how it came about. Thanks, Danny. Interestingly um, <clears throat> enough, I had been to India a couple of times, loved it because uh, the, you almost can't take a bad picture in India. There's just so much happening. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, what I went to do uh, in that particular sense was to try and capture monasteries. Um, the year before I went there, it was about 2014 because I shot that in 2015. Um, I went with a good friend of mine from my consulting group, was Dr. Ron Cassiope. And um, Ron was, is also a bit of a Buddhist. Uh, he runs a lot of philosophy classes. And he wanted to actually go to India as well as Greece mm -hmm. to be able to go onto the, if you like, the trails of the philosophers in both of those countries. And uh, while I was looking at photographs and I had photographers on the group, we also had people that were studying philosophy under Ron. And it, was, uh, it amazed me that people would spend their lives in those monasteries. Uh, the whole life would be dedicated uh, to that monastery. And I was wondering, what is it that makes that, uh, that, that happen? And then, of course, the way these monasteries were perched in the most inhospitable landscapes on the planet also drew me to it. So I didn't go there to photograph camels. <laughs> when I then went over a Kadangla Pass, which is the highest uh, motorable road in the world and came down into the Nubra Valley, I was actually going to photograph the Diskat Monastery, which is a very famous monastery there. And it's got this huge Buddha uh, on the mountain just uh, slightly uh, north of it. Uh, we came into the valley and I had a guide and a driver with me. They're with me for the entire trip. So my idea was I hide these people and that way it left me totally free to go where I wanted to go. Plus, uh, one of the people in there was a monk in, the, in a previous life and his sister, which I met through Ron, 
was married to the Riponche, which is the equivalent of the Dalai Lama. Um, and when he passed away, of course, the title does not go to his wife. So she actually came and started teaching in Perth. And he actually said, I can get you into these monasteries because of my previous life as a monk. So there I was in, um, in the Nubra Valley, and I was hoping to get into Discot Monastery. Um, that afternoon, my driver uh, and my guide, uh, we walked towards where we saw a whole lot of camels in the distance, and I saw one of them slowly heading what appeared to be towards the monastery. Now, the, the height up there, I was suffering a little bit from, um, you know, from uh, altitude sickness, sickness, which my guide called attitude sickness. <laughs> and, and basically, uh, as I saw them, I saw a shaft of light start to appear behind the camels. But it wasn't exactly where I wanted it to be, so I had to sort of run sideways to try and capture that shaft of light. Now, because the I saw the picture being very fleeting, so even though I had altitude sickness, I just threw the tripod at the driver, grabbed my 400mm uh, lens on my Canon, and virtually ran to try and get to the spot and fired off a few frames. What I was hoping would happen was I'd get separation of the camels because normally when camels are sort of uh, tethered together in a line, uh, they usually merge together and you don't get that separation. Mm. So firing very quickly, I was hoping the heck that I did manage to do that, which fortunately in one photo I did. Uh, and then just as quickly as it came, that shaft of light had disappeared. That shaft of light to me made that photograph because it gave me the um, silhouettes of the camels. Then you had the grandeur of the Himalayas in the background. Unfortunately, they were not in a, a direction where I could get the monastery as well, um, which I wanted to try and get, but I didn't at the end. Uh, but I still got a sense of place. And when uh, I got feedback from National Geographic when the photograph went up, a lot of people said, look, it reminded them of the, I guess, the romance of travel, mm. which would have happened many, many years earlier, where people did take about a year off. They did this an awful lot in, in, in England, where they went to find themselves and, you know, did about a year searching, and then they went back and continued with life. And I think the romance of travel and the camels and the Himalayas and all that sort of thing, and the feedback I've got is people felt by looking at that image it, it sort of instilled a feeling of wanting to travel. Yeah. yeah it's a fantastic image, and I know it's um, something, an image a lot of people are aware of and familiar with, although there's probably a few people have seen it on a shop window or in a, some sort of promotional marketing, and they're not familiar with the fact that it was a Nick Melodonna shot. <laughs> um, you know, and you talk about the romance of travel. You've been to many places. You've, you've photographed Africa, Asia, Europe, um, the US, New Zealand, Antarctica. What? What are some of the places, you know, maybe one or two others that you've been to where you experience that same, you know, opportunity to share the feeling of the romance of travel? I think possibly one of the places that really, uh, you know, apart from Greece, which of course I know and love very well, um, to me Cambodia had one of those <coughs> most amazing uh, uh, feelings and experiences. The commercialization is probably one of the most underestimated in the world these people were building these magnificent monuments and running these cities when you know europeans were still running around and you know wool skins in uh, mm -hmm. in england um 
And to when I first saw Angkor Wat, I just couldn't believe it. It's the largest uh, religious monument in the world. And um, they actually, the, the whole edifice actually floats. They discovered that because of the, the monsoons every year, anything they built would have got washed away. So yeah. they spent the first 30 years building a moat. Oh, and then cool. uh, they built the foundations of Angkor Wat in that moat. So the the water filled up all the crevices, etc., of the mm-hmm. of the limestone, and then they built the monument on that. And that moat still exists today. Wow. Then as you went further out, the early French explorers discovered these most amazing large temples overgrown now by strangler figs and so on right out in the jungle, mm-hmm. and they're still there. Mm-hmm. You're still getting that that romance again way out in the sticks from Seam Reap. And, of course, within Seam Reap you have this huge... Uh, temple uh, area and the stacks and stacks of these temples um, I kept going back year after year um, and I've made about 17 visits there now each time I saw it slightly differently mm. in fact Peter Risa and I were hoping to do uh, a little thing together uh, this year which of course we can't mm. but we're hoping to at least do one more um, next year, if um, COVID permits. But that was an amazing mm. place, Tony. It's uh, the people themselves too are just incredible. They really are. So, how much of a, of your travels is people, and how much is landscape? Uh, I'd say about one third people, two thirds landscape. Mainly mm-hmm. because I'm still drawn to landscapes, whether they're man-made or not. And uh, that's where I cut my teeth, I guess, and that's what drew me. Uh, so, landscapes are probably come first um but i'm really enjoying photographing people i'm not a um a studio person i don't set up lights and try and manipulate the light i like to uh photograph people in situ Mm. and be able to photograph them as they are so i'm always looking for interesting ways in which light sort of hits people whether it's through doorways or inside temples or whatever uh, and that sort of uh, attracts me again mm. in my travels to try and find great photos of people mm. which still tell a story mm. and tell something about the culture of mm. that country and those mm. people. Nick, can we wind the clock back and go back sure. to the 29th of April 2010? Can you tell us what happened that day? It was about a week before I was going on to one of my tours to Greece and it was a full tour I had nearly 25 people on it three tour leaders and uh, the um, the past manager from DEC or Department of Environment and Conservation as it was then known in the Pilbara area was a photographer um, and he said look Nick come with me and we'll do a quick shoot before you shoot off to uh, to Greece. We only were in the second day and they were inside there and I, I still to this day don't know what happened because as we're descending um, the gorge, um, he basically said, Nick, you're going to need two hands for the next bit. Mm. Pass, pass your tripod. And I remember passing the tripod and the last thing I remember was my hand trying to grasp something mm. and that everything went blank. Um, the way he then described it, was that I fell uh, several metres landing on Einstein face first, which saved my life. Mm. Because as doctors will tell you, uh, the face is a crumple zone for the body. That's so handy, had handy I landed on my, on my feet or hands or something, I would have been a quadriplegic 
and I survived. Mm. Uh, and then he came down and he said he freaked because there's a big pool of blood coming out of my head. I was lying down face first. Mm. And uh, he just automatically went into uh, you know, survival mode for me and started giving me your first aid mm. and started screaming for help. And fortunately, out of the, um, the, uh, the gorges mm. came uh, a nurse, would you believe, a drip in a backpack because she was scared that you know, her kids were going to get bitten by snakes. And uh, there was a doctor wow. and another couple of uh, <laughs> medicos from Germany out. came out of the uh, the, uh, the uh, gorge mm. and they took them nearly, I think, six or seven hours with a stretcher to walk me through the length of that gorge. And they had to set up a tripod on one of the cliffs to then be able to you know, pull up the, uh, the stretcher um, together with a guy next to me, of course, to save the mm. save mm. me from the stretcher going up and down mm. and hitting the side of the... Uh, the gorge. Mm. Um, I might also add, it was the first time the um, they used the jet. Uh, it was brand new. I was the first guy on that because mm. they actually took me into Tom Price. And then as the jet started approaching Perth, uh, P- Perth was fogbound. That was the day they had the huge fogs in Perth. And so it was diverted to Southern Cross and mm. then to Cal. Eventually they got down to Jandicott. Mm. So it was nearly 24 hours before I actually got to a hospital. And you were severely injured. Uh, look, it was a basically a death's door. Um, my face was totally smashed in. I did have, um, you know, some um, lacerations and stuff, mm. but I could still use my hands and so on. But uh, they had to get a maxillofacial surgeon to virtually reconstruct my face. Mm. So even to this day, I got three plates and eighty screws in my head. So, wow. uh, so, so you used to look like Brad Pitt, but you don't now, or, or, or is that why you look like Brad Pitt now? <laughs> Probably because I look I, like. Brad I used Pitt to now. know you, Nick, but I, I, I think I passed you the other day, but I couldn't be sure. <laughs> but look, it was. Um, I think the one thing <clears> that really uh, geed me up, Tony, I was surprised that so many people, especially from the AIPP, mm. had actually been in contact and a lot of the students and, you know, the camera clubs. It was really, um, it really geed me up into mm. the hospital to get all those emails. Mm. And then one thing one person said, which I put on my website, is said, Nick, maybe the reason you were spared is your best work is yet to come. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I can take from that and, mm. uh, you know, move on. Well, you certainly, uh, I know you, you've produced some amazing work since that period of time, but that's not to say that you hadn't up to there. I mean, you've continued to evolve and produce some incredible stuff. And, you know, some some of that's about to be shared, you know, a history of your work and, and some amazing stories of Greece, which I'd like to talk about in a moment and Karen and I'll explore. Before we do that, can you can you share with us over your career who some of your influences have been or inspirations in terms of your own work? Um, yeah, look, as well as Adams and so on, um, Andrus Apps from New Zealand was a, a very, very great uh, motivator for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually travelled to New Zealand and caught up with him. I was just mesmerised by this man's vision and mm-hmm. the way he took photographs. He had a camera built, um, a large format camera, um, mm-hmm. panoramic camera in Melbourne, and all it really had was just a couple of controls. There's nothing else in it. And he used, they used to fly him into uh, remote parts of New Zealand and um, pick him up two weeks later at another, uh, you know, uh, predestined spot. Yeah. Um, 
Look, I also enjoyed your work, Tony. I enjoyed Peter Reesway's. Uh, there were a lot of mm. very great photographers um, in Australia at that time, which also uh, got me, uh, you know, got me going. Uh, Greg Hocking was another one that influenced me uh, early in the days. And Richard Waldendorp has been a lifelong friend. In fact, Richard was the reason I joined the AIPP. Right. Um, I did a shoot um, in the USA and I had uh, an early exhibition at the Fremantle Art Centre called Stone, Sand, Wind and Time and I put in my photographs and uh, Richard came along and said, my friend, he said, you should join the AIPP and asked him what it was and he explained it. Um, and that's how I got started, um, you know, with the AIPP. Look, there were a lot of other people, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of some of them in the early days. Um, but, yeah, look, the, the people like Ansel Adams and so on really started me going in black and white mm -hmm. uh, because also, you know, being an ex-scientist, I guess I was also interested in the way he wrote about what actually made an image um, not just, you know, showing pretty pictures, but he really went into, uh, you know, the thought processes and that, mm. that really um, got me going and I thought, yes, there's a lot more to this than mm. just luck, even though luck plays a great part. Mm. Yeah. You, um, you're more than just a photographer. I mean, you're a very creative individual in lots of ways, but, but how, you know, where does things like you're a sailor and I know you're a very accomplished sailor, you're a musician and a, and a very, very good musician. Um, how do all these things fit into to the world of photography for you or mm. are they separate or is it just part of an overall package? That, that, that's, a, that's a hard one. Um, We're not here to ask the easy ones, Nick. <laughs> Look, sailing, I started sailing about, uh, oh God, nearly 40 years ago and I actually built my yacht. I had a friend of mine who was a very good musician. We used to play together. Mm. And uh, he was a good sailor. And he said, Nick, I'm about to build a boat. And uh, there are two very, very good yacht designers, the Swarbrick brothers. And they actually had, their father originally started it down in Walpole. Mm. And then he built this factory in Osborne Park. And I just started getting into photography. And I did a deal with him. I said, look, I'll do all of your photos and all of your promotions and all the rest of the stuff, your ads. In return, I'll buy the Holland deck, but can I use the space in your factory to build it? And then I built Hellas, which is the name of my yacht, appropriately, uh, over about uh, nine months. Uh, when I launched it, I didn't know anything about sailing. It took me one or two years to really learn the ropes. Then I got interested in racing. And uh, racing to me is like nautical chess. Mm -hmm. There's no day that's the same. And uh, even though you might go around the same course sometimes, uh, the wind always changes. You're always using rules and stuff to put your opponent off, <laughs> offline. Um, and uh, winning races has been, you know, I've, I had very good teams with me because it's one-third yacht, one-third skipper, one-third crew. Mm -hmm. I had some excellent crews with me over the years. Do you, take, do you take pictures of them when you're out sailing? Do you ever... Unfortunately, no. You're too damn busy avoiding other boats. And... If we could, if <laughs> we could took it around the course. Yeah, I suppose. So, uh, but other people have. Uh, I had one person that actually had a drone following uh, the boat during right. the race, which was interesting. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I was too damn busy with the tiller because you, have to, you can't leave your eyes off the... No. Uh, the water for a moment. Nick, um, you, you have got one very famous photo, and that is uh, 
John Sanders stepping off the Perry uh, Badu yes, to yep, after yep, his um, yep. dual circumnavigation. Can you tell us about that shot? Yeah, look, I've known John for a long, long time. Um, John, of course, is probably the preeminent around the world uh, sailor. He also won the Chichester Award, which is very difficult uh, to get. Um, he did his triple circumnavigation around Sorry, the triple. time the America's Cup was on. Mm. I was fortunate at that time to be on committee at Royal Perth Yacht Club, mm. and I was chairman of media public relations, mm. and I had um, a very, very enviable task of going around all the um, challenging yacht clubs around the world, mm. exchanging burgees, because it's the first time, if you remember, that the, the old mug had come to a country other than America yeah, that's right, yeah. for over 100 years. Mm. yeah. And uh, John Sanders at that time was also gaining um, fame because of his uh, solo circumnavigations. Mm. At that time, when we actually had won the cup, he'd finished his triple solo circumnavigation nonstop. Mm. And um, because I was on committee, I was able to get right up on the jetty mm. where the rest, everybody else had to go back apart from the, the media crews. Mm. And uh, the one shot I really wanted to get was mm. John stepping off after three years on that boat on land. He actually mm. did trip slightly <laughs> as you got it, but I've, yeah. I managed to get that photo and that's now still hanging up at Royal Perth Yacht Club. Mm. That, I mean, that's a that's a beautiful shot because uh, if you look at the image, he's he's you know his his foot hasn't actually touched the the jetty yet, um, and you can almost um, you know you can almost see the relief in his face. And <laughs> Absolutely, look, yeah. you know the thing about John is um, he is mad. Like we all know that anybody that can do a, um, a you know a single circumnavigation or a triple is just amazing. So I reckon you um, you captured the mood like incredibly well there but if we can go back to the america's cup um yep. win and defense i mean you were involved in that campaign i guess uh you know alan bond was the head of the syndicate at that's that time. right um alan actually did a i mean a, apart from the fact that um you know the wing kill etc etc we all know that and he was a very very um focused person but after uh, we won the cup it really went downhill because Kevin Parry put up uh, Kookaburra mm. and the two of them went at it hammer and tongs and rather the combined resources um, they basically allowed Dennis Connor to come back in mm. and whip the cup back off us. Right. They absolutely pummeled each other into mm. the ground or into the water uh, with the 12 metres. Um, it, it was a bit, a bit bit sad in a way because I think the the Royal Perth Yacht Club produced one of the most amazing defences ever in the history of the Cup. Mm. Their organisation and, uh, you know, being privy, I guess, to some of the background of it, while it was put together, uh, everybody that was um, in touch with the America's Cup said it was the best defence mm. uh, that they ever had. It was a great time for uh, mm. for Fremantle as well. It, oh, it, it put the, you know, the... Um, the town that I now live in on the map, yeah, and it completely spruced up everything, all the buildings, everything mm. else, uh, you know, came together again. It was great. Mm. Look, you know, born in Egypt, I think Alexandria for memory, that's right, yeah. Um, but obviously, Greek cultural background. Mm -hmm. You you you've mentioned a couple of times, and we've kind of held it off a little. But your love of Greece, your travels to Greece, you've spent a couple of decades 
taking tours there mm. and it's really exciting and I'm excited to be able to see this when it opens shortly, The Light Heart and Smiles of Greece. Tell us a little bit about this amazing exhibition and this body of work that you're about to um, share with all of us in Perth, uh, what's behind it and uh, what, you're, what you're looking to share with it. Good, thanks, Tony. Um, yeah, when I, say I was born in Alexandria, my father was Greek. He came from the island of Lesbos in Mytilene, and my mother was Greek as well from a, a very old Greek family. Um, just, just digressing a little bit, um, it was interesting that I was, I was actually born um, in the British camp in Alexandria. My father was in El Alamey, and he was a, a volunteer convoy driver for Montgomery's Eighth Army. And uh, being a very innovative uh, <laughs> bachelor at that time, he convinced my mother the safest place was the British camp because every time they tried to bomb it, <laughs> they bombed everything else except the camp. <laughs> and, <Yes>. uh, <laughs> and that's where he got the twinkle in his eye and I was born. But basically when they came to, um, to Perth, it was actually my uncle brought us over and it was one of the... Um, you know, one of the very early boats that came in from Alexandria and that touched in Fremantle. So I guess my folks were part of the Fremantle story. But he talked about the way of life on the Greek islands, but to be honest, I was too busy doing other things and it did, wasn't really um, of a priority for me for quite a while. It's only uh, when I decided to do the big um, round Europe trip, as most of us probably did back in those days where... You went to the walkabout hotel in or motel in uh, Earl's Court. You then uh, moved over to Australia House where all the combi vans were going around in circles. Mm -hmm. You picked one and then off you went. <laughs> and this is what I did for nine months until I blew an engine up in Stuttgart. But uh, during that particular trip, my parents hadn't seen me, of course, for months on end. So they went to, to Greece to mm -hmm. visit my uncle and I found my combi van mm. to try and get to where my uncle was. In fact, in those days, you had no GPS. I had to hire a, a taxi and then follow him with the combi through the middle of Athens <laughs> and yeah. trying to get to the, uh, the house. Mm. Uh, and then she, staying there for nearly a month, he started talking about these amazing places in Greece and the Greek islands and, mm. you know, the villages and that. That really got me interesting. And I was just starting photography in those days. Mm. So then I decided to go back and see for myself, and it was in the early 70s mm. that I started to really document <clears throat> document uh, Greece. And then I, I guess over the years I saw the changing face of Greece as well. So in, in effect, what I'm showing in this exhibition is, uh, if you like, a bit of a history uh, of Greece as, as well as uh, trying to show, uh, I guess, the landscapes, the people and the culture of Greece. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a bit of a frog in my throat. Um, one thing that really amazed me, Tony, was the people. And you would have actually found that in a lot of places you visited, mm. that they were just so kind, so helpful. And uh, the Greek hospitality, I guess, over the years of traveling is second to none. They'll offer you all they have, although many have very little. And uh, I found the villages, and if you like the traditional way of life, uh, was just amazing to photograph. So what I, uh, I then started to do, this is going back, I think the first tour I did was 1999, um, was to take people on a personal trip. So I handpicked 
the hotels. I handpicked the activities, uh, people that actually came in and out of the tour uh, to show us things. Um, for example, there's one person that for 20 years now I've been going back to the island of Naxos, is an actual duke, and he owns the castle in Naxos. His forebears, um, the 11th century Duke of Naxos, actually annexed all the, the Cyclades or Kikladis Islands where I've been going to for about the last 20 years. And uh, they were the last to fall to the Ottoman Empire because, of course, uh, they mm. were Venetian and uh, the Turks didn't want to stay out of the Venice. So a lot of these islands actually do have um, a lot of Venetian influences. So mm. bit by bit, I got more and more interested in trying to find out what it is that my father had described in, if you like, the traditional way of life. And bit by bit, the, the tour started to evolve. Okay. So you've got a few things that are going on around this event as well, I noticed. Uh, I know you've got the opening, but you've also got a couple of workshops, um, as you mentioned earlier, an artist talk. There's a whole bunch of things. And mm. if people go to your website, they'll be able to see that. I think there's a tab for exhibition, isn't it, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there is. Um, there is something if you go onto my website, uh, www.nickmelodonis.com. And that's no, M-E-L-I-D-O-N-I-S. That's correct, yep. Um, and then there is there is something there with called exhibition, and then you go on to that. It describes a little bit about the background of the exhibition. Then it actually has uh, another link to a gallery. There are sixty works in the in the exhibition, and mm. um, so it takes you through those with a little caption on each. And then there's another link that'll take you to the events around the uh, the exhibition. Uh, just very quickly, um, Saturday is the public opening two to four, and anybody listening to this blog, you're very, very welcome to come down. Mm. And um, and thanks to you, Tony, you're not only op doing opening night, but also that particular opening. Mm. <clears throat> um, then on the Sunday, I've got an artist talk, uh, 2.30. It starts, uh, just turn up. Happy to see everybody on that. Monday, I've got a creative black and white uh, workshop in the evening, 7 to 8.30. Mm. All of these are our links uh, on that page you can go to, and you can actually book on Eventbrite. Mm. 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 Uh, Tuesday, I've got an information evening on my last tours um, to Greece. I decided after about 20, it was nearly 20, 22 years now, I'll uh, have a bit of a break for a while. I have some long service leave. So I've got a few places left. Because of COVID, the last two tours are different tours, one to the mainland, one to the Greek islands. Uh, they're, they're virtually half booked already, and the people were happy to sort of stay on there mm. until COVID had finished. Mm. Um, then on the Tuesday, we got a second... Um, sorry, Wednesday... Uh, it's free. Then Thursday, we've got another workshop, which is on Creative Lightroom. Mm. Yep. And then on the last Sunday, which is the final day of the exhibition, uh, 2 to 4 p.m., I'm doing this concert with a couple of uh, musical friends of mine. Mm. Uh, and it's just going to be a lighthearted thing uh, for a couple of hours, just playing a whole lot of music that we all enjoy, it's the musicians mm. and myself. Mm. Um, and all we ask is, it's a free concert, 
but please make a donation to the Fremantle Street Doctors. Yeah, yeah. And also, I might add, uh, they've allowed us to bring our own. So if you want to bring uh, beer or wine or whatever you like, mm. you can sit down, have a noggin, and listen to some music. Look at, so, so it's a pretty full program. I tell you yeah. what, um, creatively, the next um, couple of weeks are pretty good. Like if you're a photographer in Perth and you sort of find yourself going, oh, you know, what am I going to do? You know, Tony's got an exhibition tomorrow night, Continuum, which kicks off at Linton and K. What time does that start, Tony? Well, it's actually open now. You can see it. It's, on, it's open for three weeks. But oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, the, the official opening's tomorrow. There's an artist talk on Sunday, mm. uh, two to four, I think mm. it is, mm. uh, and Subiaco, Linton and K. Yeah, so mm. that'll be there for a couple of weeks, three weeks. Excellent, excellent. I just, w- I just want to add too that we are recording this on the 26th of May. So if you're listening to this on the 26th of May next year and you rock up to Linton and Kay, uh, yeah, actually you might be there again, Tony. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I just um, and thanks for that plug, uh, Cohen. Appreciate Pleasure. it. I'm just going to just reflect on you know for the people out there who live in Perth uh, and notwithstanding pop in and see mine. But this collection of 60 images of Nick's, even on the website, if you have a look at it, it's quite a, it's, it's an amazing collection of images that reflect on so many aspects and perspectives on, on Greece and the Greek culture, particularly the island mm. culture. Mm. Um, in, I've seen some of these prints in person and they're beautifully presented and printed. Mm. Um, and you just have to get down there and see it. We did say the days, but the dates... I think the opening day for the public is the 26th of June. So, you know, from the 26th of June, make sure that weekend you you, you earmark mm, it and, mm. and get on down there. And, of course, love to see you at mine as well. Mm. Um, before you go, Nick, I, I what do you travel with? I just want to maybe, hopefully you can pass on a few tips, even though people can't travel as much, that will start to open up again, you know, hopefully soon. Yeah. But when you're out there and you think, okay, I'm going to be moving around, whether it's travelling up to Geraldton or, you know, hopefully soon travelling overseas, what, what's, you know, in terms of gear and what are some of the basic I, tips yeah, you can I say to people? I try and keep that down to a minimum, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, these days, though, Tony. Um, one of the downsides of carting equipment for, I guess, over 20 years and sailing for over 20 years is your shoulders go, and um, my shoulders at the moment, I've got a torn shoulder on the right. Um, I'm trying to avoid uh, aggravating it too much. So I try and keep the, the weight down a bit. And so generally, um, I, I, I work with both Canon and Sony. Um, mm-hmm. I've been a, a Canon person for a long, long time. I think some of the direction that Sony's going to these days is also good. Mm. So generally, I have... Um, one or two bodies, uh, and again, I try and keep it simple, 16 to 35, um, and then, uh, you know, maybe 24 to 105 and 100 to 400. Uh, the three main lenses, depending on the work I do, I, I might get a 14 mil prime, which I have with me. Mm. Um, but I try not to have too many gizmos. I find if I don't carry it with me in the field, I'm unlikely to use it. Yeah. So quite often, uh, back in the early days, I'd take virtually everything I owned, and I found most of it sat in the either in the car or in the motel. Hmm. And then you know you don't actually if you don't take it, you don't use it. Yeah. So I try and keep it very simple in that sort of regard. Hmm. Um, rather than using um, a close-up lens or whatever, uh, a, a macro lens, I usually use an extender, hmm. a 25 mil extender, and I find using that with the telephoto gives me some very good close-ups 
without adding more weight for an extra lens. Mm. Yeah. And so that's something I always carry with me. Um, obviously, good cleaning gear and so on. Uh, I do use Google Maps quite a lot because I do a lot of research. And that's been one of my things, I guess, that I, I did get from Ansel Adams, that he did research an awful lot before he went anywhere. Mm. And I know you do that as well, Tony, because mm-hmm. to me, to be able to be prepared, mm. you have to actually understand the culture and the landscape and the temperatures. Mm. And all these sort of things have got to be pre-thought and you have to be ready for them. Mm. I yeah. know sometimes the surprise element is good, but um, as somebody said, you know, great, it, great images comes from great preparation. So if you're ready uh, for the conditions, and it depends what I'm going into, if it's landscapes, and I'm not really worried so much about photographing faces and so on, but if I'm going into a place where it's a mixture of um, you know, faces and places, then I've got to make sure that I've got equipment which is not immediately obvious to somebody watching me. Mm-hmm. So I don't walk around, you know, with jackets with, you know, nickel or cannon and a whole lot of stuff on there and standing out, you know, like a sore thumb. I try and dress very simply. If I can, I try and dress similar to what they dress like. Uh, I have very, very simple backpacks sometimes with my gear, so it's not becoming very obvious. Especially for moving around uh, very um, heavily populated marketplaces and things like that. Yeah. Otherwise, just sometimes are asking mm. for it. If it's uh, out in the field, and obviously I will use a tripod. Although these days the cameras are just getting so damn good mm. uh, with a higher ISO, you could just about do without one. But mm. you still, especially with early morning and late evening, where the light is low, then I think. Uh, being able to shoot at around 100 ISO and take uh, a little bit of a time exposure mm-hmm. does make a, a difference to the photos. That's really interesting. Uh, well, yeah, so look, by and large, it's it's pretty sim- uh, simple stuff, Tony. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say your your body of work, your career. You know, if you look over the years, and you know, culminating or, or at least currently represented through this a magnificent body of work of 60 images it shows that you're somebody who does prepare you you understand the culture you try to get some background on where you're going you have a good knowledge of the places you visit which is why you're such a great tour leader um talented photographer uh, incredible body of work and, and a passion you for all, in the mail, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> you know all, all the all the passion that you showed not only through things like music and styling but particularly mm. through your photography i'm super excited to be able to you know be part of this exhibition when it's coming up and to be able to sort of open it but also just to see it i think that's incredible and a great opportunity for anybody who has the chance to get down there so what, what are the Nick, dates again tony what was that what, what, the what dates the... it starts on june uh, june the 26th saturday mm. the opening for the public's two o'clock and it goes on from there yeah. if you go to nick Melodonis, n-i-c-k-m-e-l-i-d-o-n-i-s.com mm. uh, look under the exhibition all the details are there and it is well worth an afternoon to go wandering down and have a look at that body of work. Mm-hmm. There's something um, I forgot to mention, if I can probably just cut in just mm-hmm. slightly. Um, the opening, of course, you're going to be there and so is the, the Greek consul and so on. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I'm, I'm very proud of in this particular uh, exhibition, 2021 is a very special year for the Greeks. Right. It's the 200th anniversary of the battle for independence um, and they broke away from finally the Ottoman Empire to form Greece as it is today, modern Greece. Yeah. And what the Greek government is doing all over the world 
is trying to make certain um, uh, functions mm. and uh, and things so to celebrate the 2021 celebrations. Mm, mm. Now they formed the 2021 committee um, in Greece, and the this exhibition is one of the few that has the auspices and the logo of the Greek government for the 2021 celebrations. Oh, wow. Which, like I said, I'm very, very proud mm. to have that. And the uh, the Greek consul, who's of course the, um, the representative of the Greek Republic in Perth, mm. Georgia Kariosiotu, is actually uh, going to be doing part of the opening uh, of the exhibition. So part of that exhibition, you'll see as you come in the door, there's a special logo of the 2021 committee, mm. and it is the celebrations of the the Greek independence, the 200th oh. anniversary of their state. That's, that's brilliant. I didn't know yeah. that. That's like, congratulations on getting that, and it's another reason. Yeah, it took you know, a while, yeah, because yeah. you got no idea the paperwork that went into it, <laughs> but they had to make sure that was no other agenda uh, <laughs> that anybody had to be able to use that logo. So, yeah, I was very proud of that. Yeah, so you should be. Another reason for people to get down and see it. Nick, um, been a real privilege, and I know there's so much more depth to what you've done yeah, in your career awesome. and what you're doing. And I think whoever wrote that uh, that little piece that said your best work's yet to come, I'm sure that's true. But, geez, if it's better than what you've been producing, then we're all in for a treat. <laughs> Thanks for you know coming along today. And Carwin, can I just say thanks for inviting me to step into those huge shoes that Christian walks around in. Um, it's been a lot great. of fun and it's great to be able to talk to a, a fellow photographer who I have a lot of respect for. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me along as well. Yeah, thanks, Carwin and Tony. That's absolutely fabulous. And, you know, uh, you know, so honoured to be part of this blog. Hey, Nick, uh, before you go, we've got a little um, a special treat for you, mate. Um... Have a listen to this. My soul is wandering. My eyes are blind. The walls of fear are closing in my mind. I don't want to give confusion. I just want to free your mind. And it's getting harder, getting harder all the time. I've been speaking through the eons of time I grow weary of the apathy I find Well, for every hand that's offered There's a thousand more to find And it's getting harder, getting harder all the time and that song there is called uh, It's Getting Harder All the Time. Uh, written by Nick Melodonis for the kids in Ethiopia. And that's a, uh, a beautiful track. Nick and uh, Tony, thanks for joining us on Light Minded.